Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You may not know it, but Missouri is one of the biggest wine producers in the United States of America. How it got there is an intriguing story. Diane Houston and I sit down on our latest podcast to tell you how Missouri became one of the top wine producers, not only in the United States, but in the world. I think it's the perfect time to talk about this subject because we're headed into the holiday season and we're headed towards uh, maybe interactions with more family and you need booze for all of that. And Missouri as a state has been very, 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 uh, I I guess you could say big in the wine industry since really the er early 1800s when... I'm going to call him a friend. Our first uh, German immigrant to come over here, Gottfried Duden, to create what we know as the Duden. Missouri wine country, right? Am I saying his name correctly? Who I- the hell though? I don't know. I mean, these pronunciations, I tried to do a little bit of, you know, research to see, make sure that we're pronounced, you know, we pronounce things correctly. But you know how they, they come here. A lot of the times their last names um, get adjusted anyway. And then the pronunciation even with their own families today isn't the original pronunciation. We're going with Duden because Duden. he's a good he's a good dude. You yeah, know what I mean? He is a good dude. He's like, if he doesn't come <laughs> here, we don't have wine in the state of Missouri, do we? What would we do without Missouri wine? I mean, for crying out loud. Uh, yeah, this is a great story. And I, and I think it's important to also kind of pay homage to a really pretty big chapter of German history in the state of Missouri. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that a German, of course, you think of like Anheuser-Busch and you think of um, big city settlements. And um, of course, on our side, you have uh, the Rieger family. You have a lot of German immigration that happens, but the real true blast of immigration that happens to Germ- from Germany to the state of Missouri happens because of a guy named Godfrey Duden. Duden. So he's born in 1789 and he visits St. Louis in 1820s and he ends up kind of touring the state, doing a little tour around. And he notices the hills and the beautiful country, which we would call wine country today, which is just to the, you know, the southeast of St. Louis, that area, which is now known as Rhineland. He he sees this and he's like, this looks kind of like my homeland. You know, they got the Missouri, you got the river flowing mm-hmm. through. It's beautiful. And so he writes a, uh, a book in 1829 that's published and it's published widely like a pamphlet. It's almost like propaganda. <laughs> and he publishes this pamphlet 
that talks about how amazing this land is in the state of Missouri. And he says it's got great fertile soil. The climate is mild. I don't know what he's talking about. Splendid rivers. And, and this ends up being like all of these German immigrants read this and say, this sounds like a great place to call home. And so by the 18, early 1830s, a big slew of them come to the area. Duden himself bought land in Warren County, which is in the heart of the wine country, sure. about 50 miles from St. Louis. So he settles in there. And, and at this point, there's no wine. It's just they want a better life. They want cheap land. It's, just, it's the American story, right? Right. They, they want to, to be able to have those the opportunities that others did. But they were a little different. And I think this is kind of cool. Um, and I actually read about this when I took Missouri history through for graduate class. Mm -hmm. um, there was a big influx of these German immigrants for sure, but they also were very, very protective of their culture. Like, like we, we're going to move here, but we don't want to intermingle. <laughs> like, like you guys stay over there. We stay over here. So it became very interesting that like, even in the St. Louis area, there were laws in place at the time um, that said that you couldn't um, drink on Sundays, you know, like sounds like Kansas. Yeah. Right. Me. Yeah. Like, like, like blue laws. At that blue, they're blue, that's exactly what they were. Yeah. It's blue laws. So the Germans work six days a week. And when they were working in the factories and this is in the eight, you know, early 1830s, forties, fifties in St. Louis area, um, they ended up creating their own settlements outside of town and they thought they could just establish their own laws and things mm -hmm. like that um, just so they could get around the blue laws. But they ended up just not caring. They just did whatever they wanted because Sunday was their day of rest, which meant it was their day to play poker, drink, have fun. And that's not how uh, more traditional Christians were. It was a day of family and you know, the, the old Puritan battle, if you will. Sure. sure. Um, so these guys were, you know, they had these values and I think it's important to remember that this was how they felt, which is kind of explains why when they all, when, when Duden writes this, he inspires this guy named Friedrich. And I love this Minch, yeah. Minch, Mr. Minch, Mr. Minch, and Mr. Minch and his brother. Um, he inspires these two guys to come Friedrich and his brother to come to the area in 1832. So they just come like a little bit of them, 500 of them, 500. That's a lot. Even for this, for this time period, that's a lot of people. Well, yeah. And, and, and you could actually, I mean, if you, if you want to be you know, real here, it's, it's kind of like a German invasion of the 1830s where they discover, Hey, there's something really cool in the heartland here. And if we come here, we can kind of get our land and, and, and get things going. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did, which I, I think is really cool. Like, I, do, I, yeah. I, I always find it fascinating. And now I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Do it. But I also find it, fa also find it fascinating. Like, how do you find Missouri and Kansas and Iowa and the Midwest coming from Europe? Like, why don't you come to New York City or wherever you come into the country for the first time and just mm -hmm. stay there? But they, they find ways to, to, to come out here or find family or friends or other people who have been here. I, I find the whole immigrating story to America and how people ended up where they yeah. are to be one of the most fascinating things we have in this country. I 100% agree with you on that because we see it with every culture. We yeah. don't just see it with Germans. We see it with Irish. We see it mm -hmm. because of Bernard Donnelly in Kansas City and he brings the Irish over here to work. We see it um, even in Germans, even in the middle of Kansas. My relatives went to Nebraska in yeah. the middle of nowhere 
Mm-hmm. And then my relatives went to Seneca, Kansas, um, in Kansas, and, and they were growing grapes. Or even the that. Swedish influence that we have yes. in the center of Kansas, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's a big Scandinavian association. These, So we see it within cities. and We do see a, a cross-culture. That's what makes it the melting pot, right? Mm-hmm. The cross-culture of even Kansas City, but they still lived in their own neighborhoods. And so we have to think of it on a broader scale, is that when you have so much land, because if you've been to Europe and, I, you know, it, it's not there's not there's not land for the pickings you know no, i mean no. it's very expensive and it was very expensive even then so you have these people that are moving over and if they have a background it doesn't even matter if it's just in farming and they're usually just laborers they just want the cheapest possible land that reminds them of where they came from and then they don't want to change their culture and i think that's the most important thing to remember mm-hmm. these guys like friedrich uh, mentioned in in duden like Duden specifically never wanted to, he he kind of refused to learn English. <laughs> He's like, everybody come over here, but then I'm just not, you know, I'm not adapting. Right. So that, but that is how they were. And, and but that not, but that makes it cool though. I it mean does. When, when you can go to different parts of the country and hear different languages and people still carrying on their own traditions or cultures. I, I think that's what, you know, kind of was, was awesome about America when we were, you know, getting our, our kind of our sea legs underneath us is that everywhere you went, it was somebody different, but all kind of coming together for the same thing, you know? Well, and that's absolutely true because and we lose that culture a little bit when we live in bigger cities, we have, we have culture, but we've lost our own real identity. That's why, you know, I mean, for years, I didn't know where I came from and, you know, I have family in Iowa. This is my Swedish family in Iowa and, you know, they still have, they, the, the town is still like has Swedish names and they talk like, they asked me if I wanted Ustakaka when I was up there for a family. I'm like, what, it, what? Uh, did you just cuss at me? Yeah. I, uh, that's tapioca pudding. I did not know. Wow. So like, but those are the kind of things that we lose in the bigger cities that those smaller towns, they still kind of hold on to those things. And, and here in, in our Rhineland in Missouri, they really have still held on to a lot of their culture. And it starts with these guys like Friedrich Mensch, who comes to the area with the 500 Germans. Mm-hmm. And he and his, bro- he, his brother follows him and his brother establishes Mount Pleasant Winery. And of course, I have a personal connection to this whole shit show down there. <laughs> well, <laughs> because I, I, when I was... When, no, I was going to say, we, we, we can definitely get to that. But I mean, if, if we don't really like slow down for a second and let everybody know, yeah. Mensch, he's the guy who basically discovered why discovered grapes by yeah. accident. Well, and Missouri. that's exactly and if it's what not happens. for him. You don't have a story about a wine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I know. I've got my sweatshirt on. Yeah. He establishes the town of Dutzow, which is on. Um, it's still there. It's it's you blink and you miss it, but it's there. And he decided to establish a town and sell land for cheap prices. So he's with good terms like interest free type thing like this. And then we were just talking about the idea of these, these, uh, these states or these big cities having immigrants that did leave the bigger cities and come out with these guys Mm -hmm. and the German settlement society is an example in Philadelphia. So they were looking for a place where they could, their people could live again. We're talking about this with one another, keep their customs, their heritage and all that. And they were like, this, whatever this guy down, you know, Mitch is doing with this Dutzow thing is, sounds cool. So they ended up buying this journal, German settlement society from Philadelphia ends up buying 11,000 acres in the heart of the Rhineland. And they're the ones that established one of my favorite towns in all of Missouri, 
Herman. It's a great place. And if, you, if you've never been there, you're really missing out on one of the one of the coolest places, especially, you know, this time of the year, the Oktoberfest time of the year. Now, this year, obviously, with COVID, things are a lot different. Mm-hmm. But we've gone there a couple of times and you just I mean, it, it really is like going back in time and like being in Europe. It just doesn't it feel is. like you're in the middle of Missouri. Yeah, it, Missouri. You can um, you can take the train, you know, the yeah. Amtrak down there. Yeah, it's it's a great area. It's one of my favorite places, honestly. It's established in 1843, and it's where the first cultivated vine is planted. So you know, you got to kind of think about this this area. So so there was a problem with that area. It's beautiful as it is because it's right on the Missouri River. Mm-hmm. No different than settlements, uh, big city settlements that are always by rivers. I mean, same thing, transportation and everything else. So the land was super rocky. So it it was like, look at this beautiful place and look at where we've landed. Oh crap. Crops don't grow well here. (laughs) So there was a problem. So it was rocky, hilly. So in the forest though, and, and they noticed that they found wild grapes. So grapes would be growing up to into the trees, like up tall into the trees. They were obviously native. And after frost, they got very sweet. So they started to pick the grapes after the hard frost, gather them, press them for their own personal wine and also for vinegar. And then that we've got the cultivated vine happening very shortly after, just a couple of years later. There, that means, of course, that they're actually planting to grow. Mm-hmm. And production triples in like one year. Like, boom, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is going to be our stick. Yeah, this is what this is how we're going to make people understand and we're going to be on the map. So in 1844, they started offering the, of course, the German Immigrant Society and Herman started offering, they started selling wine lots. So it's like, hey, you interested in buying, uh, you know, making some wine, $50 for a wine lot, interest free, just make some wine. <laughs> and of course, that just sealed the deal. Yeah. So that's when we have a lot of characters enter the scene and you have <clears throat> to be clear, Herman's going to have frame houses and a post office and businesses. It's not like it was just straight up like wine. But, and but, that's but, it. but it was only a town of 90 and had stuff that like a, a city of Kansas city would have. I mean, it's got hotels, it's got post office, it's got now. You know, it does. A, 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 yeah. But, but I mean, you know, but even it back then, I mean, it started out pretty big, didn't it? Well, it, it, within within a very short amount of time, 1839, um, Herman's population, the town, and you got to remember that it includes the surrounding area, but was 450. Right. They had 90 houses within the town. So, so that's a pretty good sized settlement in a very short amount of time. So, and, and you have to figure too that just because they were selling wine lots, I'm just saying not everybody was making wine for profits. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they all probably were, you know, doing some science experiments in their cellars, but right. they, you know, but this is when real production began. So in, in 1847, so very short amount of time, four years later, this guy named Michael Pochel or Pochel starts uh, what becomes known as Stonehill Winery. Mm-hmm. So right. And it's really kind of off the beaten path in downtown Herman, but um, he, within a very short amount of time, he's shipping a thousand gallons of wines to market markets across the country. Like what, how, how did that, how did that happen? (laughs) He, he was another one. Didn't make any effort to speak any English. Um, He established where the Stonehill winery is today. And, and what is, what is known as Stonehill winery. So he started doing this in 1847. 
he establishes the current Stonehill Winery in 1869. And the buildings from the period stand today. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, it's 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 unique because mm-hmm. you go there today and you're like, this is the original stuff. Like there's been it's, no updating, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's very cool. And they did converted their own their old barn into a restaurant. And it's just it's a very cool place. In the 1870s, they're winning international awards. And this is where, and no offense, as much as we're talking about the wines in Missouri, I have to wonder about quality of all wines when I hear things like this. Not sure they tasted the same back in these days. Right. Um, they won international awards. And by the time the in the 1870s, Stonehill alone is shipping 1.25 million gallons of wine a year Across the world. It became kind of the, the, the wine city of America in Herman, Missouri back then. It was the second largest winery in the entire country, the third in the world. Like, that's well, crazy. What was ahead of it in the country? Like Cincinnati or something? Yes. Or and right? it, it, how did you? Yes. And isn't it crazy to think Cincinnati, Ohio? That, that, again, I'm, I have to think about cultivation and how different. And we don't but have a California. River, you know? We don't have yeah. California yet. We don't have yeah. California yet. So it's on the river. And, and you have, yes, yeah, Cincinnati was very much a hub of shipping. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's why. I, I really haven't looked into the Cincinnati connection. But, you know, so at this time, this guy who was born in, or pretty much born in race. He came to uh, the area of Herman with his family when he was nine years old. His name's George Hussman, and he's got a great story. He was born in 1827. They come to Herman about the time of the, the town booming, 1838, and he self-taught. So this guy is self-taught. He learns about cross, like uh, creating hybrids. He is uh, doing like the hybrids of wild grapes so they can help withstand the colder winters. I mean, this guy's doing science experiments with wine. He opens his first winery when he's 20. Wow. So, yes, 20 years old. And he became the model setup of all wineries really across the nation, which we'll get to him again here in a little bit. But so he knew how the right grapes for the region. He was able to take some of these um, grapes from other regions, one of them being in 1845, the Virginia seedling, uh, which is also known as Norton. And Norton is our state grape in Missouri, if you didn't know. I did not know that. I didn't know um, there was a state grape. Every state has a grape. Seriously? <laughs> I had no idea. Just like they have a tree. Well, I it's could the, see a tree and a bird and things like but, that. but Yeah, Missouri's state tree, I think, is a dogwood. <laughs> Kansas' a state bird is the Jayhawk. That's a yeah, faux bird. Mm. So what's interesting about the Norton... And and I have a, a, again lots of stories about Norton. It is a very distinct flavor. So is, is, it, is it the very sweet grape? Because no, it seems no, like, no, 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 no. Because it seems no. like all Missouri wines are very sweet. Traditionally, so you're right. This is what you got to remember that these guys now Rhineland, and you have to think of Germans. They would have been, you know, used to Rieslings, Gewurztraminer, sweeter wines. Mm-hmm. So you know there is that. But they also know that the appeal of the American public is going to be red wine also. And we're not talking red wine that tastes like grape juice. We're talking red wine that has substance to it. And the closest thing they could get for this was the Norton. And I, once you taste a Norton, you never forget a Norton. I'll just say that. It's Mm -hmm. very distinct. It's not my favorite grape, not my favorite wine. I can go on for days. So if I'm going to the liquor store today and I'm looking in the Missouri wine section, is there like a Norton wine that you buy? Yep. And what does and that taste like? It is a, well, it's very rich. It's going to be heavier. It's got just a very, uh, you know, that cellar taste 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, and I don't mean oak, even though it is oaked. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of it musty. It's a good way to describe it. Now, oh. I will. I'm going to give some credit to Missouri wineries for just a second, though. Norton used to just stand on its own. It was like here's just like a cabernet, right? Like a, you buy a cabernet, but you know, we over the years we've developed into um, blending wines. So you have lots of really good blends out there and Norton has now been tamed by some other grapes. So there are several Missouri wineries that have taken the Norton grape, which is traditional for the state of Missouri Mm -hmm. and blended it where it's quite pleasurable to drink. Um, It's also Chamberson is another one you'll see. That's another Missouri grape. So Chamberson and Norton are very similar in that regard. So if you go, if you went to to the liquor store today, even to a price chopper in Missouri where they sell booze because they're not stupid. Mm. When you have, when you look on the shelf, you will see Norton all over. And and they're usually very expensive too. They're not the cheap ones. Yeah. You're not going to get your $6 bottle of uh, grape juice. You know, you're going to spend a good 20 bucks on a bottle of Norton. So, so Norton is, it's, it was so unique because it is unique. I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. Um, One visitor back in the 1840s after trying it said it was uh, rich, black and heavy and a great drink. For the summer diseases. Yeah, I love I, how they- the, the summer diseases. <laughs> so like if you're sick, you drink this wine and it's supposed to make you feel better. Well, I mean, you know, we've already talked about what they did about whiskey. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, they used to think booze solved a lot of problems. So so Herman becomes the wine city of America. I mean, it's known yeah. as the wine city of America. It said the streets ran red through the town. I love that because mm. when they would they cut down barrels, of course, the wine would run down the streets. Um, it was ranked in the 1860s up with Cincinnati and New York. Hey, you're with the biggest production of wine in the country. So one of the things, and, and I, and I, I will backtrack a little bit is that back when I was younger, um, I really thought that I was going to be, enter the wine industry. That was actually a, when I was going to college, I had majored in communication. I thought, Oh, I, I want to sell wine for a living. My uncle sold wine. He was very successful. I thought it'd be super fun. Um, so after college, I took an internship and I went down to Mount Pleasant winery in Augusta, Missouri and worked there as a tasting room manager and marketing director Mm -hmm. for uptime. And one of the things that I learned very quickly about being in the wine Rhineland of um, the St. Louis Metro, if you will, in Augusta is that they're very, 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 very proud of the fact that they saved the French grapes. I didn't, I don't know if you've ever heard this story. Before. No, I, and I wanted to get to that. Like we, we talk about French wine all the time, mm-hmm. but without Missouri, like maybe we're not sitting here and maybe France isn't known for wine today. It, well, it, it certainly could have really set them back. I'll just say that. This story is one of those, if you do a wine tour in anywhere in the Appalachian, the Augusta or the Herman area, you're going to hear the story. Um, but the story is, just, it is a cool story. So in the 1860s, 13 acres of French of vineyards and you are vines. And you have to remember that these were well-established wine. These aren't like, oh, we just planted them last year. Like these are old, beautiful, beautiful and so the French grapes, they end up just dying, like out of nowhere, 13 acres gone. Well, out of the blue. Well, we know now, especially how things spread. Mm-hmm. So it spreads like wildfire. So all of a sudden, it just starts devastating the entire region. It, it really infected Europe. I mean, it, it, it was that bad. And so 
what happens is a French botanist thought it was uh, phylloxera, okay? And phylloxera feeds on the roots of the vines and destroys the plant. So it's, a, it, it's, it's horrible for wines. I mean, or, or should say for the wine industry. Yeah. And he, it's like, okay, we know what the problem is but we can't solve it. We don't have a solution. There's no, there's no vaccine. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so in 1871 roots from the plants of these infected vines were sent to Missouri's entomologist, Charles Riley. So they sent them to like, we're going to send them to the Missouri, to Missouri. I love that. Like Missouri, they send them to Missouri so they can study them and see what mm-hmm. they come up with. So it turns out phylloxera, this is native to America. So grapes here naturally have a resistance to phylloxera. So they have tougher roots. So they work to graft the European roots and all that with the American, right? And they take the cuttings and they thought it was the best way to overcome the disease. And they were right. And so George Hussman, the dude who started growing his grapes at 20, Mm -hmm. uh, was one of the three men that worked to send these grafted vines back to Europe. And voila, we saved the French grapes. It worked. Isn't that crazy? crazy. It it, it is. And it really is a a great story because you would never think, like, when when you think of wines, there's a couple of things you think of. You think of France. You think of Napa. You think of... Yeah, that's pretty much it. You don't normally think of Missouri, especially if you're not living in this part of the country. You'd never think Missouri was so influential in the wine industry, but not just in France. So Hussman fixes the French wine and then he skates and goes out to Napa and takes the roots with him out there. And then like sells out the Midwest. And now we're going, wait a second, what are you doing? He's like our hero. And then he shafts us. No, but it, it, uh, this guy was smart and he's not the only one that did this. He, but he was the one, he eventually did move West. He was running like a nursery in Sedalia, Missouri. I'm like, what is happening? But most of these, these guys who grew or were into wines also did, they were, they were horticulturists. They were, they were doing, they were doing you know, uh, peach trees and pears and apples. I mean, it wasn't like they were just in the, they were in the orchard business. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, he goes out to uh, in the middle of what now is the coveted wine region in 1881, he goes to Napa Valley and he wrote many papers and um, became the expert on California and Missouri wines. And he's considered, I love this. He's considered to be the father of the Napa Valley wine industry. So he yeah. died in 1902 and is buried there. So he was our savior. And then he went out to California and helped develop the Napa Valley, which is just so cool. It, you know, it really is. I mean, the guy is, is, is influential throughout the world in wine. And mm-hmm. he has, no pun intended, his roots right here in Missouri. Yeah. And he... You know, the wine industry in Missouri was really destroyed. Well, Prohibition for sure, but uh, was destroyed by uh, the railroad. So you can produce high quality California wine. And if you live in California, you can drink the California wine, but you need the railroad to actually expand your 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 business. Mm -hmm. And the railroad is what's really sealed the deal. And um, it became, you know, made everything more accessible. So. Uh, just to give you an idea of how big Missouri still was, when California overtook as the number one state for wine growing in the country, Missouri was still number two. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it, it, this didn't go away. What killed it, and I would love to know if we could go back in time and change things around and prohibition didn't happen, if prohibition wouldn't have happened, 
what would Missouri wine look like and mm-hmm. taste like today? That would be a really interesting conversation. Well, but, and, and that's what I was going to ask you. Where, where would we be in the state of Missouri and how recognizable would the state of Missouri be had prohibition never happened when it comes to the wine industry? Well, I mean, all of these family run businesses that were still going in the 1919, um, I, I, I'm assuming because we have a real problem with recipes followed generations. Mm-hmm. And so you stop making wine. We can't say, oh, this is what it tasted like because, you know, varietal, the climate, everything, everything depends on how much rain you get. So we can't know what it tasted like and we can't. So, so it's hard to know what Missouri would have looked like. I, I have to commend Missouri and these people who came in and revitalized the wine industry here because after Prohibition, I can remember the story from Mount Pleasant um, and Mount Pleasant had beautiful cellars. I, uh, I spent an entire tornado warning down in the cellars drinking port one time. That might've been mm. a bad idea. Oh, oh my God, it was so fun. I mean, I, what's better, a tornado warning in a cellar that built in 1881, I feel pretty safe, and I get to drink support. Yeah, when? but the port thing, that, that doesn't that, that doesn't. Oh, it's so thing, good. Oh, it? my uh, God, yes, it's so good. They make a great tawny port, and I'm a big fan of the port, love some port. But in any case, the after the 18th Amendment, they went around, and at Mount Pleasant, I can tell you, that they, they the government set fire to the vines just set fire to it. Uh, they set fire to all equipment or they took equipment away that killed it. Places like Stone Hill survived by uh, using their cellars for mushrooms. So for mushroom growing, that was a mm-hmm. big way to survive. Adam Pukta, which is one of my favorite wineries in the um, it's about two miles from downtown Herman. Adam Pukta is the oldest family owned winery in Missouri at the time. It started in 1855. They barely survived. So after prohibition, they were like trying to farm that horrible land and they barely made it. But now they're still in business. It's now the oldest family owned winery in the entire country. Wow. So right there in Herman, Missouri. And so what happens is that there's a, the wine industry kind of takes a halt. People weren't really, it's hard for us to remember, you know, I mean, if you remember just the wine industry just took a huge, took off big time in the nineties and the two thousands, if you, Mm -hmm. people started really drinking wine, um, they went away from the, the cocktails and now we've kind of gone back to that whole, now we're into these, you know, specialty beverages that are low calorie and, and, and vodka flavored vodka is the thing. Well, when the wine industry really started to rebound, several people started to pick up these old wineries across Missouri, like Stonehill, Mount Pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, Stonehill was bought in 1965 and reopened. Mount Pleasant that was established in 1859 reopened in 1966. And I mean, it, I can remember at Mount Pleasant that, you know, right next to the old house uh, was a, a a burn pile. And I used to go through the burn pile and look at old glass and things that they had thrown in there. I mean, there's so much history down there. So after the the wineries reopened, it's kind of hard to realize that when I was working in 2004, I think it was um, at Mount Pleasant Winery, I worked with the state of Missouri to create a list of all of the wineries in Missouri, like for their brochure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I called every winery and I asked them if you could bring in your own food, if you charge for tastings, like standard questions. Could you park your RV? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, all of that. Um, do you offer tours? I made this checklist and it's actually still used today, except just on a way bigger scale. 
there were 33 wineries in Missouri in 2004. I remember because I made the list. I counted the other day for this brochure that they just now put out, which is more like a small novel. Um, there are over 140 wow. Missouri wineries. Crazy. Do you think in it's going to continue to grow or do you think we're like, cause there's only so much mm. you can do with the land. I mean, are we tapped out? Um, I think that right now is a really hard time to gauge that, right? Um, this isn't the time where we're doing traveling and a lot of wineries. I, I will tell you, I went through Defiance, Missouri. Um, there's some biker bars down in Defiance, Missouri. Anybody who's been through there knows exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. The Katie Trail goes through there and, and they're certainly defiant in Defiance. So a lot of people, not a lot of uh, what we call it, social distancing happening down there in Defiance. Right. But the further you got out, like my mom, um, the further you got out to uh, into wine country, they're 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 open, but you can't do tastings. You're uh, you know they're doing the best they can. So I can say 140 wineries exist right now, but I don't know how many have shut down. Just I, and I mean shut down like they're still producing, but they aren't doing the tastings and things like that. I think we're going to have a hit in the Missouri industry here because of COVID. Um, recession, but I think it'll bounce right back like you've never seen because we don't have a prohibition on the horizon for crying out loud. Can you imagine? Talk about a mutiny. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. How how did anybody survive COVID? Yeah, right. <laughs> you how know? did anybody survive prohibition? You know? Exactly. Oh, well, they just made the wine in their basements. That's yeah. what they did. Um, but I think that it, I, I we have to give some homage and some and and really those guys back in the 1850s who or 1830s who decided to hold on to their heritage who gave us cities little mini cities in the middle of wine country washington missouri herman missouri even dutzow that barely is there mm-hmm. gave us that culture and gave gave life to an area past just standard farming that has stayed with missouri and it has a rich history of saving grapes in wine country in France. We we owe those German Im- stubborn German immigrants a lot. I think it's safe to say without Missouri, there's no wine. Heck no, there wouldn't be. It might taste a little different though if we kept if we were running the show. A lot of a uh, lot of sweet wine, a lot of sugar in your glass. <laughs> pretty cool story the next time you have a glass of wine whether it be from california or france or even from right here in the midwest it all had its roots right here in the state of missouri this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. (laughs) 